I just want to put something on the beginning of our class, just a follow-up from last week. If you remember last week, we were talking about the Trinity, and this week as I was uh, studying, I came across a quotation that would have been so good to have last week, so I thought I'd share it at the beginning of, of this week. This is Special Testimony Bulletin 7, page 62, talking about the Trinity and those who are trying to use scientific knowledge to understand the Trinity and the nature of God. I am instructed to say, the sentiments of those who are searching for advanced scientific ideas are not to be trusted. Such representations as the following are made. The Father is as the light invisible. The Son is as the light embodied. The Spirit is as the light shed abroad. The Father is like dew, invisible vapor. The Son is like dew gathered in beauteous form. The Spirit is like dew fallen to the seed of life. Another representation, the Father is like the invisible vapor. The Son is like the leaden cloud. And the Spirit is rain fallen and working in refreshing power. All these spiritualistic representations are simply nothingness. They are imperfect, untrue. They weaken and diminish the majesty which uh, no earthly likeness can compare to. God cannot be compared with things his hands have made. These are mere earthly things, suffering under a curse uh, because of the sins of man. The Father cannot be described by the things of earth. The Father is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and is invisible to mortal sight. The Son is all the fullness of the Godhead manifested. The Word of God declared Him to be the express image of His person. And the Comforter that Christ promised to send after He ascended to heaven is the Spirit and all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who are received, who all who receive and believe in Christ. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. So I, I thought that was just a really uh, kind of a clarifying quote that hopefully some people could benefit from. So, good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Und unsere Freunde in So to our friends in Germany, Happy New Year. We miss you. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to an end of another year. We look back and we thank you for how you've led through this year, how you have blessed our class, how you've blessed those who, who love you and are working to shine the light of your heavenly truth into this world. We uh, thank you for the doors you've opened, for the, uh, the way you have sustained. We pray that as the uh, new year unfolds, that uh, you will uh, empower us to be even more effective in this coming year, that more avenues of communication will open, more opportunities to share this message with, with those around the world will be experienced and the world will be lightened with your glory and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing a lesson number two in our new quarterly glimpses of our God. And uh, the lesson uh, title this week is In the Beginning. And so we explore creation this week, uh, a topic that is hotly debated uh, in the world, in schools, in colleges, in universities, in the church, in courtrooms. And there are four main ideas put forth about the origins of life and earth. And the four main ideas put forth are Big Bang, um, random, uh, basically at the Big Bang there was nothing. And out of nothing, uh, with meaning no energy, no matter, no gravity, no um, time, no space, out of nothing, there was a bang from which everything came. And eventually, out of chaos over billions of years, with forces of nature spontaneously generating life that evolved from nothing to what we have today. Um, second view is God created everything from nothing, de novo and perfect. And what we have today on earth is 
not the way God created it, but uh, God's creation has been attacked by an infecting power. A third view is God used the process of evolution in billions of years to create something called theistic evolution. And the fourth major view, and I should say major, it's kind of a minor major, because it's really not that major, but it's out there, is that aliens seeded um, life on planet Earth. And technically, that could be correct, because God is an extraterrestrial. Okay, So you could argue that, yes, God is not uh, uh, from Earth. And so, um, uh, you know, you could argue that point. But that's not what they mean when they say that. So as we go through the lesson today, I thought maybe we could see if there's uh, the harmony between Scripture and science, what the science says, which view seems to be most consistent with the evidence that we have. And so starting in the lesson, in the beginning, when you hear the lesson title, in the beginning, what pops to mind first? Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. Which in the beginning is the real beginning? John 1.1. Yeah, John 1.1. 1, 1. What difference might it make for us to recognize John 1.1 1, 1 comes before Genesis 1.1 1, 1 in regards to creation? God, Christ existed before creation. So Christ and God existed before the creation of this world. How about is Genesis 1.1... 1, 1 or Genesis, the first chapter, for instance, describing creation of the universe. No, no. no it's not. Just the, our solar system. Yeah, so what evidence do we have from Scripture that Genesis 1-1 is not describing creation of the entire universe? Job, Job. where all the sons of God gathered together at the creation of this okay. world. See, Margaret said Job, Job 38, uh, chapter 38, verse 4 through 7. Uh, where it says, where were you when I laid earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So the scripture tells us that when earth was created, the angels were already there shouting for joy. So and why is this important to recognize that that the universe was already in existence before Earth was made. Why is that important? Oh, and, and while you're thinking about that, there's another quotation I like to throw in historic references from our, our church's uh, foundation. This is out of a book called um, Confrontation, page 18. Angels on probation had been deceived by Satan and had been led on by him in the great rebellion in heaven against Christ. They failed to endure the test brought to bear upon them, and they fell. Adam was then created in the image of God and placed upon probation. And so that's consistent with the Job passage, that the angels were already here before Adam was created. So the implications of understanding this point, if we conclude that Genesis describes creation of the entire universe, what will happen when we look at science? When you look out at the heavens at night and you see the stars, that are hundreds of billions of light years away. How long did it take that light to get here? Hundreds of billions of light years. <laughs> okay? That's how long it took that light to get here that you're seeing. It was released from that sun that long ago. Um, or radio, radio dating of the geological bedrock of, pl of, the, of the rocks on Earth and the rocks brought back from the moon. 
and meteors that land on this planet, when they radiodate those, those inorganic geological rocks, how, how old do those date to? Billions of years old. Billions of years old. Um, how about when you read the scripture in Genesis, and it says on day one, what happened on day one? Let there be light. What happened on day four? Sun, moon, and stars. You ever like wonder about that? Yeah, so, so if, we, if we conclude that Genesis describes the whole universe, then, then we're immediately having all types of con- conflict in our understanding. If we understand that, in fact, no, the universe was already here when God went over to a corner of the Milky Way and began to terraform a planet called Earth. And how does Genesis 1-2 describe something there that's going on in the Scripture? Yeah, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The words there actually mean formless, empty, dark, void, bis, whole, empty. How might we call that today with, with regular English language? We're looking out in space, we see a dark, void, empty, deep, A black hole. (laughs) Yeah. I think uh, as I read this, that that God created his universe billions of years ago. And life had been existing and things had been going on. And and we don't really have um, insight into all the things God was doing. It wouldn't be beyond my imagination that he might have been, you know, creating here and creating there and creating here and creating there throughout billions of years. And, And eventually Lucifer's rebellion began in heaven. And in the aftermath of that rebellion, God, as part of the answer to the allegations made, said, okay, let's go over to this little black nothing in the corner of the Milky Way. And Christ says, let there be light. And the black hole dissipates. There was light here now. And the matter that was at the core of the black hole that had been created by God billions of years earlier God took that matter and spun it into Earth and the sun and the moon and the stars of this solar system, Venus, Mercury, and Mars. And thus we have a, a creation history where God is working six to 10,000 years ago, creating this planet in a universe that is billions of years old, and the bedrock and geological structures of Earth are billions of years. It's all consistent with science, all consistent with Scripture. But if you misunderstand the scripture and believe that the whole universe was created in Genesis 1, then things begin to get confusing. Yes? There is a, there's a doctor who's done some research up here at Oak Ridge. His name is Robert Gentry. Yes. Who has done some research on plutonium halos. Yes. That are in the granites. Yes. Of the earth. Yes. Which proves that the earth is 6,000 years old. Yes. I think most of us are familiar with that research, aren't we? Yeah, the halos which have a half-life of microseconds, and if the uh, Earth was a molten blob of hot liquid rock, that these plutonium halos which have half-lives of microseconds would not be in the bedrock of the Earth because uh, it's, it's like uh, basically a, a bubble bursting in air and leaving a vision behind. No, the air is moving and it would blow it away. The liquid rock is moving and it would, it would not be re- remain there. So the fact that there's millions of these radio halos in solid rock suggests that it was created de novo. It didn't come from a cooling down over billions of years of liquid molten rock or it wouldn't be there. So I think that that's good evidence 
uh, to me, in the bedrock of the earth, that something was spoken into existence rather than something cooled down over billions of years. Yes? The thought that the redwoods were created, say they were created at creation, they're there now after the flood, but they were there at creation. How many rings would they have had? Yeah, I don't think the redwoods were there at creation at all. I think the redwoods were completely... Dis- I, I think the trees at creation, reading in Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, the chapter right of the flood, it says the trees that were in existence prior to the flood were many times uh, uh, taller and larger than any tree now existing on earth, and the wood was, was so dense it was almost like stone. And so I believe all the trees, in fact, were destroyed at the flood, and the, what we have at the redwoods are those, the trees that have grown since the flood. The, po- the point I'm asking is that whatever trees were at creation, how many rings would they have had the second day of creation after they were created? Yeah, um, I guess we'll have to cut one open and find out. That's a speculative question. I don't know. Did Were they, were they made with... The question also to say that the earth was here before. I don't think the trees uh, that God created would have had rings. I don't think they would have. Because each ring, if you understand how the rings form, I don't think I don't think the earth as it came from God's hand looks like the earth that we see today. If you understand the rings on, on, on these types of trees, they happen because there's a cycle of death and decay. Every year there's a cycle of death and decay. I don't think there were cycles of death and decay as God created the earth in Eden. And so I, I think the question is, I understand where you're going with it. I don't think it, I don't think it's right. I think that the trees weren't shedding their leaves, they weren't dying, they weren't falling, there wasn't all this decay going on in Eden, and so I don't think the trees that God created look like the trees we have today. And I think we have some, some inspired evidence that there wasn't death and decay prior to the fall of man, and so there wasn't this cycle that goes around that causes the rings to happen. So if we understand this, this geological argument when somebody comes to us and, and tries to poke fun at a creationist because the universe is billions of years old, you don't have to be intimidated by that at all. You can embrace that and say, well, of course the scripture would teach that. See, what happens is that many things have been taught through history uh, by misunderstanding scripture, and then science comes along and shows that that's not quite true. Galileo had some problems with the church because of this when he suggested that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Now, this also gives us some uh, further support when we look at the the dust on the moon, space dust on the moon. Uh, Because if the universe is billions of years old, and the moon had been there for all those billions of years, then the space dust on the moon would have been multiple feet thick, 20, 30 feet thick. But the space dust when the, when the astronauts got there is about what, four to six inches deep, which is consistent with the accumulation that happens between six and 10,000 years. So even though the rocks date to billions of years, the space dust suggests that the moon, even though the rocks are billions of years old, really isn't more than six to 10,000 years in that position in space, which would be consistent with a black hole with the material being there and then dissipated and the moon is put up. So it seems like the things work out. But what do we do with carbon-14 dating? Does everybody understand what carbon-14 dating is? This, this has to do with organic material. What I was talking about a moment ago was inorganic rock. Organic material is from living tissue. Rock is non-living tissue. So all living tissue on Earth is, is carbon-based. And carbon in its natural form is a, is, has 12 carbon, is a, is a 12, is C12, basically. Um, 
and carbon-14 is an isotope that happens because of solar radiation, radiation from the sun, causing some of the carbon-14 to form an isotope called carbon excuse me, carbon-12 to form an isotope called carbon-14. Carbon-14 has a, uh, as a radioactive isotope, decays slowly. It takes about 5,700 years for half of the carbon-14 to decay. So if you had, say, uh, whatever the measuring units we're using, 100, 5,000 years from now, we'd had 50 carbon-14s left. And 5,000 years after that, we'd have 25 left. And 5,000 years after that, we'd have 12 and a half left, and, and so forth. Every 5,700 years, half of it uh, uh, decays away. Because of that, scientists measure how much um, carbon-14 in a living being, because right now your body is constantly turning over and it's living tissue, incorporating new carbon in when you eat food and replacing the carbon. And so it stays at a constant state. You're in an equilibrium with your environment. So the environment and you can't have a constant state of carbon-14. When you die, however, whatever bones and things you leave behind will slowly, the carbon-14 does not get replaced, so it begins to decay. And so they can then measure the carbon-14, go by these 5,700-year half-lives and, and basically come up with a date projecting how long and how old this is. And so this is why, and, and this, and they can only go back so far to about 50,000 years. After that, there's so, such little left, they can't do it anymore. So, what's the flaw in the carbon-14 theory? She says they don't keep into account the flood. That's correct, but, but what, how would the flood impact carbon-14? What causes carbon-14 in our ap- atmosphere? The radiation from the sun. The whole carbon-14 data thing is based on an assumption that cannot be proven. And that assumption is that the carbon-14 in our atmosphere today is exactly the same as the carbon-14 in the atmosphere 4,000, 5,000 years ago. If the carbon-14 in the atmosphere 5,000 years ago was substantially less, then their starting point is less, so they're going to appear significantly older than they really are. And so that's the big flaw. And this is the Genesis 1-7. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And of course, then we have the whole history of the flood coming later in Genesis, where all this water comes down, creating oceans that uh, were not here before. Do you have any questions that you say would be inconsistent with what we're putting forth so far? Well, let's push forward then. And if you do, throw it out. Let's talk about it. Um, what's the problem with the Big Bang theory of origins and subsequently evolutionary speciation. And what that means is things evolving from a lower life form to a higher life form over time. What's the problem with this theory, which is the predominant theory held in the world? What's the problem with it? Yes. Things tend to de- degenerate as they age. Ah, so it goes against the laws of entropy. There's actually a law in science, second law of thermodynamics, things tend toward disorder. Okay? And in fact, as things age, as things go forward, things degenerate. They don't actually evolve to higher forms. So it contradicts one of the basic laws. And when you bring this up with evolutionists, and I do, they'll say, well, in the system, there, there has to be, if, if energy is going down in one place, then, then energy is going up somewhere. And the universe is, is, is infinite and, and billions of years old. So just because things are becoming chaotic here on Earth, it doesn't mean they're not becoming more ordered in some other part of the universe. That we can't see. Yeah, this is what they say. Oh. They may have access to tree of life in the other part of the universe, so we don't. <laughs> yes. Is what we understand as the law of entropy, is that something that has, has governed a world that is uh, enshrouded in sin uh, and is not part of God's original uh, natural laws? I'm uh, not so sure about that. 
Entropy basically says if you don't put energy into a system, that system decays. So if you're not taking care of your house, you walk away from your house for 50 years and come back to it, having done nothing to it, it will not be at the same state that you left it. It will decay over 50 years. If you don't brush your teeth, they'll decay. Okay, things slowly decay if you don't put energy into the system. That's basically the law of thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics. Think then through what happens if people separate any intelligent being in the universe separates itself from God. Do we have life inherent of ourselves? Do we acquire that constant connection, the outflow of God's life, God's goodness, God's grace? I didn't bring the quotes with me, but there's some quotes from Ellen White where she says that every atom is sustained by God's, by God's constant energy in the universe. That he is constantly governing the, the circuit of the planets and their rotation. God's energy is keeping them in their rotation. So there are many quotes she says like that. So I actually do think that the infinite one is constantly giving of himself to sustain and uphold his universe and that we all draw our life from him. Even the unfallen beings continue to draw their life from him. And so I think the second law of thermodynamics would say if the energy isn't constantly coming in from God, then they're going to die. The, uh, the, the Big Bang Theory has no source for this energy. Where does this energy originate? There is no source. It just came out of nothing. We have a source, an infinite God who is infinitely good and infinitely loving and provides of himself for our health and welfare. Other problems with the Big Bang Theory, it's not scientific. What do I mean? Well, science, science by there's, the definition of science is reproducible experimentation. There is no reproducible evidence of the Big Bang Theory. So it's not scientific in, in, it, in its basis. So it contradicts its own claim to be a scientific explanation for origins. It's not. It's a faith-based explanation because they have no direct evidence of a Big Bang at all. It's all inferred. If you look at the evidence on planet Earth for this, there are no transitional fossils. If you actually believe that things evolve from a lower life form to higher life forms over billions of years through periods of, of millions of years of, of, of transition... So, you know, the lower life forms, the monkeys, went to something higher over billions of years and eventually became, you know, homo sapiens, then there should be billions of, in, of, of these uh, fossils that are transitional in nature in between one species and another. And they're not. They're not there. In the fossil record of Earth, they're, they're not there. Well, that's evidence that this never happened, that the speciations and evolution did, didn't occur. What else is the problem with the Big Bang Theory? It requires us to believe there is no purpose for our existence. There is no purpose. It's random. It's chaos. just happened. No purpose. It requires us to believe there is no right or wrong, no no morally um, good or bad, other than what we ourselves decide as a society. We can decide anything is right or wrong. And and what gets me is (laughs) is the people who, you know, purport this idea of evolution will tell you that the law of this of this particular framework is the law of survival of the fittest. Those, the strong survive, pass their genes along, the weak are eliminated, and that's how things get better. Yet if I, as a six foot four, strapping young man, well, old man now, um, <laughs> should go over to a professor, a university professor, and, and kill him and rape his daughter to pass my genes along, and claim to him, uh, or maybe not kill him, beat him up and rape his daughter, and, and then claim to him, I am following the law that you proclaim. 
survival of the fittest. Now, you're not going to call the police on me, are you? <laughs> because this is the law that you say the universe runs by, and I'm just following the law that you purport. In fact, there is a, um, a, a famous professor from, um, from England who... Um, Oh, he was, the, I think, the curator of one of the um, one of the great museums in England. In the aftermath of World War II, he said that the logical outcome of the survival of the fittest evolutionary um, way of thinking is what Adolf Hitler did in, in, in Europe. He practiced eugenics. He wanted to cleanse the genetic gene pool. He uh, used the strength and the might. The strong will destroy the weak. And this is what it looks like when you actually practice those principles in real life. So there are problems when we look at the uh, the Big Bang Theory, it requires us, and so to take the very next point, it requires us then to believe that killing is good, as killing is necessary for adaptation and evolutionary advancement. Death, then, is not our enemy, but our friend for development. There are serious problems with this theory. What are problems with theistic evolution? Theistic evolution, the idea that God created the matter, maybe even created some microorganisms, and then left it run on its own for billions of years until we evolved at the end of that chain. What are the problems with that theory? Ah, Big one right here. If that is true, then God created death. God is the source of death. And you're going to find when we get to Friday's lesson, uh, excuse me, Thursday's lesson, that in fact, many Christians still teach that theory. Yes. Then what God created wasn't perfect because it had to evolve to be perfection. Yes. And then he comes back to restore perfection for what purpose? Yes, so God uses death to create. God doesn't create perfection. Selfishness is part of God's creation. He creates selfishness. He creates the principles of kill or be killed. A selfishness and sin are not choices, but the engine that drives us to survive and adapt and develop and advance. Thus, we can justify our cruelty to others because we're simply following the plan of God to evolve and develop. God is not a being of love, but the originator of all pain and all suffering, as he designed this universe to run on this terrible system of kill or be killed. Sin is not a breach of an eternal design protocol or principle of love. Instead, sin in this system, if you believe in God and this theistic evolution, then sin simply becomes breaking a set of arbitrary rules put in place by the powerful deity. And you're going to see how, how that idea is so consistent with much of what's taught in historic Christianity. And then this idea of theistic evolution clearly conflicts with the biblical inspired record and undermines our confidence in Scripture, and thus the purpose of Jesus and why he came. What, what purpose? We evolved from lower life forms. Why is Jesus here? To do what? What was his mission? So to restore the original image back to the form of a bacterium or a, or a amoeba that that life started on. I mean, it's 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 senseless. It becomes really senseless and pointless, doesn't it? So why do you think people seriously? This idea of theistic evolution, I don't believe, started with non-believing agnostics. I don't think the agnostics said, hey, let's insert a God into our theory. I think it started with, with believing people already believed in God and inserted evolutionary thinking into their theory. Why did they do it? Why? What do you think happened? That they would take a belief in God and insert this other idea. Yes? Well, maybe because sometimes, you know, they, they look into the heavens 
and see all this explosions going on and chaos and stars dying and new stars forming and and it leads people, including me, to wonder why is there so much chaos in the universe? So stars dying and stars forming. We use those words. Are stars alive? Do they have souls? Do they have consciousness? Well, no. they. Just, I know they explode and they supernova and do all that. Sure. Form and do we know? Do and there's always chaos going on there, and if there's uh, if there's gas, then there's loud noise. Just uh, it makes. Uh, it makes people like the scientists, quote-unquote, wonder. <laughs> it depends on the lens you look at it through. If you see a star exploding in the heavens, what does it mean? Violence. Violence is a possibility. What other possibilities? Chaos is a possibility. What else? New stars, New stars forming. Might fireworks. Ah, like, thank you. What happens if uh, some ants are looking up out here across the street on the 4th of July and they look into the sky? What are they going to see? A lot of stars exploding, aren't they? Uh, because there's chaos, because there's destruction and killing going on, or is there celebration? Do we know? Do we really know what's going on out in the rest of the universe? Do we really know? We have to project our ideas onto what's going on. So one po- you've thrown possibilities out there. It's equally possible these are celebrations going on in various parts of the universe with really cool fireworks. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. We can ask when we get there. But we don't know that there's any death or killing going on when these things are exploding. We don't have any evidence for that. We just have evidence that stars are exploding. Why is it happening that way? could be part of the lesson book as well. God may be allowing certain things to go in a certain place to teach a lesson. It might be another little sandbox story going on somewhere. What happens? It could be intelligent beings that God has given... um, because uh, I really believe uh, God is going to give us freedom to do lots of experiments. It could be what you see exploding as some intelligent being has got his little lab in this part of in this little part of the galaxy, and he is experimenting on stuff, and there's an explosion going on. As long as there's not evil intent, there's not killing people and harming. Do you think God is really going to say no? You can't go experiment with this thing or that thing. I think he's going to let us. He wants us to learn how his universe runs and how the physics and the laws and things run. He wants us to know that stuff. So. There are all kinds of possibilities. I think it would be narrow-sighted for us to project that just because we see stars exploding, that means it's chaos. I don't see chaos. I see lots of order. When you see how our planet so predictably rotates on its axis and circles its sun so reliably and predictably and the planets around it, that this is so ordered. It's so predictable that they can tell you and chart out thousands and tens of thousands of years in the future when an eclipse is going to happen. How can they chart that out so predictably? Because it's not chaos in the universe. It's order in the universe. But these are what happens. I think you raised a great great point. This is how some people interpret what they see. But it does go through the lens we look through, doesn't it? Yeah. So we've got some problems with Big Bang. We've got some problems with theistic evolution. Let's look at Bible creation. Uh, I guess the first problem, if you want to say there's a problem, is we can't directly demonstrate it or observe it. There's no direct evidence. We can't reproduce it in a lab and show it to be true. Um, But the Bible creation is consistent with itself. 
And the evidence of science we went through, much of it is also consistent. The geological dating we've explained is consistent with the Bible. Moon dust fits. Carbon dating fits. Um, some of the laws we're not going to go through today that we've talked about in class before, like the, the law of love, the circle of beneficence, how things were created to, uh, to live in harmony with giving, the principles of giving, and how we see this as part of the, the design protocols for life. Um, the seven-day weekly cycle. Bible gives us an insight, an answer for why a seven-day weekly cycle exists. There is no um, astronomical explanation for seven-day weekly cycle. Uh, unlike, the mo- unlike the month and the day and the year, we have astronomical explanations. Why do all societies of the world have a seven-day weekly cycle? Where does that come from? Well, the Bible gives us insight to that. Um, evolutionary theory cannot answer that question. Um, genetics. Interesting, the Bible is right. Darwin was wrong. Darwin's finches, where he saw all the different beaks and all the different finches and postulated, and postulated that... Um, that random mutations over millions of years cause these uh, various finches to adapt to, to whether they're going to be you know, eating uh, little seeds and have beaks that could crunch seeds or, or they were going to be getting grubs and need longer beaks to poke into the earth and get grubs and stuff like that. And their beaks were all different, and so he postulated as random mutation. Well, in actuality, there is no gene sequence difference amongst all these finches. There's no random gene mutations that have happened. What happens instead is epigenetic changes, meaning that the gene sequencing is the same, but there are molecules that sit above the genes that tell which genes to express themselves and which genes not to express themselves and how the genes are to express themselves. This is epigenetic changes. happens within one to three generations. And so the Bible says in the commandments that the sins of the fathers are passed down to the third and fourth generation. That's epigenetic change. It's described. There And I've got a whole, a whole program I do on the epigenetics that the things you eat, the foods you eat, will alter how your genes are expressed, and you'll pass those, exchange, those gene expression changes down to your kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids. So the sequencing stays the same. So Darwin was wrong. Scripture is right. How about the idea that um, mutation introduces new genetic information? It doesn't do it. Mutation destroys genetic information. It deletes genetic information. Have you ever seen any uh, genetic um, uh, random mutations in, in the medical science field and where we document this? It, it, it doesn't enhance life and help it become better in some way. It causes problems. Mutations cause disease and problems, and we lose information. And when we, uh, for instance, when we um, breed animals, if you breed um, animals that can crossbreed from one species to another, their products, if they can give a living uh, being that come from it, they're sterile. They can't reproduce. Like a mule, a mule can't reproduce. Well, how does that work if supposedly mutations and things like this would cause species to new species to form? They would need to be able to reproduce, but they can't. So we've got problems with that. How about the idea that the biblical... Now get your mind around this. The, the Bible was written at a time where I don't think that they had a lot of ideas about uh, chromosomes and DNA. Do you think they really knew much about that at the time the Bible was written? Yet the Bible describes that the woman was taken from the rib of man, not that man came from woman. Genetically speaking, that's possible. Because a man has an X and a Y chromosome, and you can take and duplicate an X and delete the Y and make a woman. But you can't take a woman with two X's and create a man from her. She doesn't have a Y chromosome. Doesn't have the genetic material to do it. So the Bible describes that Adam was created first, and from Adam a woman was made, and then together they join themselves to create either. That's very consistent with the chromosomes and the genes, but it's not consistent to go the other way. What was the only way, had they ever seen from their human experience, 
a woman come from a man? Have they ever seen that in human history? No. Why would they write that a woman came from a man and get the genetics right unless it was inspired? So I find these things you know, somewhat compelling to me when you put the pieces together. Um, adaptation. What we talked about, the epigenetic changes, that life experience, choices we make, cause us to adapt and change by environmental exposure and experience. This has commonly been mistaken as evolution. The Bible describes that God made us and designed us for adaptation, to adapt and change based on the choices and experiences we make. And this some would call microevolution, and this happens. This is very biblical. You shouldn't argue against it. We do evolve. We do change. But we don't change from one species to another species. We change within the species based on experience. We also uh, pointed out um, how the recent NASA finding of the planets are also consistent with the biblical record. And the biblical diet found to be healthier by science now than any other diet, if you follow the Bible diet. Okay, well, that's pretty interesting. How did those ancients know that those ancient Hebrew slaves know that the diet prescribed there in the first five books of Genesis, uh, first five books of the Bible, was better than this high-tech science diet coming out of the world's metropolitan Egypt? How'd they know that? You know, science will also tell you that the mummies have a tri- uh, trichinosis. They have, they have those little worms that you get from eating pork in the, in the flesh of the mummies. How did the Jews know not to eat that stuff? Well, they were slaves. What kind of science did they know? Well, they had someone who designed them write, help write out a, a manual that would help them get back on track. And then we have a complex ecosystems, as we've described the law of love in here before, where everything is interdependent on everything else. How could really an ecosystem arise in which everything depends on everything else without the other stuff there at the same time. If you follow, did you follow my point? Yeah, okay. So what are advantages, what are the advantages to believing in Bible creation? Well, it gives us purpose for our existence. We have purpose. We're not random. It's not chaos. We have a moral guiding principle of, of love and beneficence that guides and over, oversees our, our development and direction. Uh, we can live healthier lives by following biblical health laws and principles now, avoiding disease. We can have knowledge of a loving God. We can have hope in an eternal life and a future. I have patients who believe in the evolutionary model, and they lose a loved one. They have no hope. I've asked them, do you hope to see your child again? No. No. Isn't that sad? No hope. What, is there a disadvantage to believing in Bible creation? I put a couple. You may get connected to a religious institution that squashes free thinking and undermines freedom. Is that not true? Yeah. And you may, and then if you do that, believing in Bible creation, you may seek to use the government to force others to honor your Creator and creation. You may force worship or restrict freedoms on how one chooses to govern their body, such as contraception, which happens in the world today. For those who believe in creation, it's God's prerogative for procreation, and you can't use contraception. These are problems. Hmm. 
And they yes, and they persecute, yes. Mm-hmm. Because they believe in creation, but they believe in a distorted view of God's character, the one who creates. What advantage is there in believing in life originating? What advantage is there believing that life originated from evolution? Well, you might remain a free thinker who values evidence and avoids having your mind closed by institutional dogma. Seriously, I have patients who've rejected religion because the religion they were raised in told them they weren't allowed to think, they just had to believe. And yet, these people who think and reason, I believe, are closer to the true God than those who have accepted this other version of God that doesn't allow you to think. And they may be more tolerant to others. If you actually look what's happening in the earth, uh, in, in our own politics, in America, who is more tolerant to give other people freedom to think for themselves? As Romans says, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Is it the religious right that's the most tolerant, or is it the liberal left that's the most tolerant? Now think that through, guys. The people who are the evolutionary people who don't believe in God are willing to leave other people free to think for themselves. What should we be doing? Yeah, do you think Satan rejoices when we take the name of Christ and we go out and practice totalitarian co- methods to coerce people to, think, to do things and think the way we think? Yeah. The disadvantage for believing in life originating from evolution is that, there again, there's no purpose for our existence. Um, <clears throat> no intelligence greater than humanity thus far discovered. Inability to trust a higher power with your future, which increases, and I see this in my office, fear and anxiety. I, I, I've got to worry about my future. I've got to worry about how things turn out. I can't live a life of faith where I exercise my uh, power of choice and governance in me and trust God with how things turn out. I can't do that because there's no God to trust with how things turn out. I've got to be constantly worrying about how things turn out, and life's a constant battle day in, day out. Um, and so it increases fear and anxiety, which increases the inflammatory cascade, which increases a mental and physical illness. But this can also happen for those who believe in an angry, wrathful God, because they also live in fear and have the entire constellation of inflammatory pathways go as well. Um, let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson. Oh, any questions about that so far? We've talked about from way back when till now. Do people who believe in evolution then believe that we are still going to evolve into something even better than we are now? I yes. Think that's their yeah. Yes, my understanding is most that do. Yes, we're still evolving. We're across, you know, between animals and humans to do that, or how do they think that's? No, I don't. I don't I, you know, there are multiple different theories. And you can see them depicted in cinema. Some have. People, um, you know, and some, in fact, right now today, we are doing genetic mutation where we are blending human genes with animal genes. We're doing that right now. We have animal, we have mice that have human, human brains, human neurons in, in mice. They've made them this way. Um, they have, uh, they have pigs that have human blood or human hearts. Um, they, they're inserting the genes to do this. We are doing these amalgamations of man and animal right now in our science labs. Alan White says one of the sins that was most heinous that led to the flood was the amalgamation of man and animal. Um, anyway, we are doing those things now. We are, we are, and, and my personal belief is we are the highest created beings on this planet. Merging our genetic gene pool with animal genes does not cause us to develop. It will 
that will bring us down toward the, the brute beast as it talks about in Peter. So one theory, though, is, and you can see it in some, uh, was it the Island of Dr. Moreau a movie, okay, where they were doing this very thing and they were having these quasi-animal human-type hybrids on this particular film. But others would actually have people, other types of cinema um, representations of our evolution would have us evolving into energy beings, beings where we can shed our body and live on a higher plane of existence where we live as energy beings free from the, from the uh, confines of, of, um, of, the, of the corporal body and uh, with that have access to infinite amounts of universal knowledge and power. Hmm, what's that sound like? Yes. Isn't that what modern uh, the church today teaches? That we're going to evolve to a higher life form outside the body? Well, that's when they die, we leave the body and we're in the spirit. Some would teach that there's a spirit that leaves the body, um, but they wouldn't teach it as evolution. They would, they would teach that we already possess that, that ability. We already have the spirit within us or this immortal soul within us. It's not something we're going to evolve and develop into, but we currently possess it. And when we die, we're freed from the encumbrances of this, this fleshly, sinful body to fulfill our true destiny in God's kingdom. So slightly different, but similar. Um, <clears throat> so Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph, uh, it says, In numerous places, the Bible clearly links the Lord as creator with the Lord as redeemer, a link that provides more evidence than evolution, uh, more evidence that evolution cannot be reconciled with the Bible, especially with the teaching of the cross. Otherwise, what? The Lord would have incarnated into uh, an evolved ape created through the vicious and painful murderous cycle of natural selection, all in order to abolish death, the last enemy? How can death be the enemy if it was one of God's chosen means for creating humans, uh, at least according to the evolutionary model? The Lord must have expended plenty of dead Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and Homo neanderthalensis in order to finally get his own image, Homo sapiens. Uh, what this would mean, then, is that Jesus came to save humankind from the very process he as creator used to create, in, uh, create it in the first place. If that sounds ridiculous, it's because it is. Why does the Bible link Lord as creator with Lord as redeemer? And it does. Why does it link it? What do you understand redemption to be? Recreation. Say that louder. Recreation. Recreation. So think it through, guys. Think it through. The one who created us created us, built us, designed us, wrote the, the, the genetic programming, wrote the, the software upon which our, our characters and souls are to run, the perfect law of love. Um, does it make sense that when the whole system got you know, messed up, that the one who actually created it would be the best and only really one who could fix all the different glitches in the system? Yeah, he's the creator, he's the recreator. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me, yes. It's linked just like God's justice and God's mercy. And how's that linked? God's justice is God's mercy. God's okay. Mercy is I-, I thought you were going to take us down another trail there for a minute. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so and we, when we see this today, if, if a product that you own breaks, isn't the best person to fix it, the, the manufacturer who built it? So God is the designer. Do you see Christ's mission to earth as that central purpose? He came to fix that which was broken by sin. Yeah, um, and of course, what the question then is begged, what was broken? And you know our version that mankind was broken by sin, and therefore mankind needed to be fixed. 
There's other versions that suggest that God himself got damaged by sin, became angry and wrathful, and he had to be fixed. Does that sound too harsh to say? And we went through a couple weeks ago multiple quotes, probably 15 of them taught by the church that say the very thing. But there's something that's easy to believe about what must be God that needs fixed. Because if he came and fixed humankind, why aren't we fixed? You know, we're still going through all... I mean, it's easy... What is it that needs to be fixed in mankind? Our hearts. Is it inanimate nature, simply, that needs to be fixed? It's that connection between us and God. Okay, can... So, so what is it that... Is it, it's our heart, which means our relationship with him, which means our willingness to love and trust, right? This is all what needs to be fixed, because it's broken by sin, we're fearful, we're insecure, we believe lies, right? Can God get us to love him by the exercise of might and power? No. So why, after Christ's mission, are we not fixed? Because the remedy doesn't exist to fix us, or because we still are... Non-compliant. Thank you, non-compliant. The rate-limiting step is the human heart. God can't force us and get the outcome he wants. And so we're not fixed because most of us remain unwilling to be fixed. And the, the definition of fixed is a misunderstanding, I think, within the church realm. Does that mean we'll never, quote, sin again, or does that mean that... Of course we're never going to sin again. Um, Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that day. Aren't you looking forward to the day we live in a world where we never sin again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that day. So if I'm still sinning, I'm just not understanding God. Um, What is sinning? That's what I'm trying to... What is sinning? Explain. What is sinning? Misuse of free will. Missing the mark. I heard a lot of things. It sounds given the right one, evidently. No, I, they're all they're all right around the bounce in the issue. It's the, the scripture says lawlessness. What law? Lawless. Okay, and and where where is the law written according to the new covenant? Where is it written? In the heart. Okay, and the heart is what? It's the mind. Is the heart and your brain the same thing exactly? No. It's not. It's not exactly the same thing. The heart is contained within the, in the neural structure, but it's not exactly the same thing. If I were to take uh, and do a surgery, which some kids have epilepsy, and they have to have a piece of the brain removed to cure their epilepsy, you know this, when I do that, do I get a piece of their heart? Do I have their heart now? Do I? So God can't heal their heart because now I've got it. Or do they still have their heart? The heart is more than just the tissue of the brain. Something more. And this is very important to recognize. Um, Think about it this way. Software and hardware on a computer. Software and hardware on a computer. Software, the hardware is our brain. Each of us in this room have an English software package, which was uploaded after birth. Our hearts are born defective because of Adam where we are primarily in our hearts fearful, insecure, and watching out for ourselves. The law will be written on the heart and mind, heart and mind, software, not hardware. And so the person who has the law of love written on the heart and mind, that's the converted person. Their heart now is right with God. I trust God. I used to be enmity with him. I used to be at war, natural hearts, enmity against God. Abraham trusted God, is recognized as righteous. Why? Because he had a heart change. His heart changed. That person stands in right relationship. Now, with that right relationship, do, do they have new? Do they have a new body? They have a new brain. They have new hardware. No, they have new software. Now, there's a battle that exists between their heart and their habit patterns, their conditioned responses, their reflexes, their physical weakness. Okay, 
And people mistakenly believe that sin is generated by a weak body rather than a rebellious heart. Once the heart is right with God, then you stand in right relationship, and over the course of time, then through that, that cooperative relationship and indwelling spirit, your neural circuits change. Because you stop firing over the course of time, those old neural circuits, and there is a transforming process in the brain that happens, but that transforming process uh, is a consequence of a heart that's already been renewed. It's not the cause of the renewing of the heart. Did, did everybody follow that? Which comes first, a change of heart attitude toward God and then change in behavior, or change in behavior and then your heart changes toward God? Which comes first? The heart changes for God. And so the converted man who finds himself doing an old habit that he really doesn't want to do because he's been doing it for 50 years, let's say uh, a sailor has been converted and he cursed for 50 years, it was just part of his language, and now he's converted his new heart and he doesn't want to curse anymore. Do you think that at that moment he never says a bad word again? Or do you think there are moments where something might happen and, and, and impulsively a bad word just pops right out? Well, the unconverted man didn't think twice about it. That was perfectly normal. You get offended, so what? You know? Might even say a curse word to you for getting offended. Okay? Um, but now when he says a curse word pops out of his mouth, oh, what a wretched man am I? Oh, Lord, change me. I hate being like this. Why am I so good? So even though he may have a behavior, that's, his heart is still right with God. And, okay? That's the big difference. Okay? So yes. And then one day we get a new, a new body, and then we don't even have those old, old things that trip us up. And we live free from it all. That's what we're looking forward to. So back to this thing here. It says, but how can death be the enemy if it was one of God's chosen means for creating humans, at least according to evolutionary model? I think it's a great question. How can death be the enemy if God is the source of death, the one who must kill in order to be just in the end? Does the Bible not tell us that death is the enemy? And yet, many Christians teach that God must kill, and he is the source of death. I had a conversation last week with a lovely lady, friend, intelligent, bright, loves the Lord, heart's passion to do God's work, but for some reason she believes that God is the source of death. She even said God murdered the people after the flood. Because he had to, they deserved it, he had to punish them in order to be just. I find a contradiction here. If death is the enemy that's going to be destroyed, is death going to be destroyed in the end, swallowed up and destroyed? And death originates with God? Well, the only way to do that, guys, we've got to destroy God. And that's exactly what Satan wants. That's why Satan is teaching and having people teach that God is the source of death. God is the source of life. Sin pays its wage. The wage is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Um, or out of uh, Selected Messages 235, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act, transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing sin, men separate themselves from God, that second law of thermodynamics we talked about, uh, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Why does death come out from sin? Because sin severs from our source of life. God is the source of life. Death happens when we're disconnected from him. It's not an infliction from the source of life. I think this is a huge difference. What do you think? Yeah. Last paragraph says, uh, how is the idea of the fall so clearly biblically, uh, so it's clearly biblical, explained by those who 
seek to meld evolution with the Bible? Does God use processes of violence, selfishness, and dominance of the strong against the weak in order to create a morally flawless and selfless being who then fails uh, excuse me, who then falls into the state of violence, selfishness, and dominance of the strong over the weak, a state from which he has to be redeemed or else face final punishment? And I ask the question, um, again, we can make this point, does God use the process of violence, dominance of the strong against the weak, in order to punish the wicked, torture and destroy them in order to make a flawless and selfless society? Because that's exactly what those who would stand against this perspective of God teach. That God in the end, in order to be just, must inflict torture and suffering and dominate, use his dominance over the weak to punish and destroy in order to bring about a flawless and selfless society. That's why I do not believe. That's why I didn't want to go to Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the lesson asked some great questions and pointed out the stupidity of believing in theistic evolution. You can't put the two together. It's believe one, believe the other, but putting the two together, it's completely inconsistent. And I think it also opened the door for us to ask those very questions that are still taught in Christianity about a dominating, controlling God who uses these very powers of killing and torture to bring about a flawless and loving society. Uh, if he's not going to do it through evolution, why is he going to do it in the end? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like this that you so loved the world that you came to earth, took upon yourself our, our sickened state, and in your own person you cured all that was wrong with mankind. And now you offer offer your, yourself to us. The Holy Spirit will take all that you've achieved, reproduce it in us, Lord, write your law in our hearts and minds. May it no longer be us, our old fear and secure selves living, but may it be you living within us, that we can love you and love others as you have loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.